Thank you for listening to audio from Gospel Community Church in Eugene, Oregon. For more information about our church or our Sunday services, please visit gccugene.org. Good morning, Gospel Community Church. My name is Ronnie. As as Rick mentioned, I'm one of the members here, obviously. Um, I don't think they just let anybody go through the eldership process, hopefully. Um, as Rick said earlier, our whole aim and goal is to make Jesus the hero. If you're new, if this is your first time, we hope that that comes through through the message and everything we do here today, that it's not about any one person, but all about the God-man, Jesus Christ, who came and purchased our salvation for us. And so I hope that's what you hear today and see as you sit under the preaching of the word. As a church, we've been going through a series entitled Saints in Society. And we've been looking at 1 Corinthians, which is a, a letter that Paul had addressed to the church in Corinth, helping them to understand what it's like to live in the world, as Rick had said, as a saint, some, this uh, declaration that's been placed over their lives through what Jesus did for them, these holy people, and how are they expected to live. And so we've been looking at the same letter to see its application to us now in 2020. And Rick preached a sermon last week in 1 Corinthians chapter 10. We'll be picking up where he left off at verse 14. He preached 1, 1 through 13 in a sermon entitled, Remember, Trust, and Live. And if I was going to give this sermon a title uh, for note takers, I would just say this is about the saints' unity or the saints' participation with Christ. So we'll start and dive in by reading the text and then exploring what Paul has to say to the Corinthians and its application to us today. 1 Corinthians 10, 14 through 22. If you have a Bible, go ahead and turn there with me now. Paul says, Therefore, my beloved, flee from idolatry. I speak as to a sensible people. Judge for yourselves what I say. The cup of blessing that we bless, is it not a participation in the blood of Christ? The bread that we break, is it not a participation in the body of Christ? Because there is one bread, we who are many are one body, for we all partake of the one bread. Consider the people of Israel. Are not those who eat the sacrifices participants in the altar? What do I imply then? That food offered to idols is anything? Or that an idol is anything? No. I imply that what pagan sacrifice they offer to demons and not to God. I do not want you to be participants with demons. You cannot drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of demons. You cannot partake of the table of the Lord and the table of demons. Shall we provoke the Lord to jealousy? Are we stronger than he? Let's pray. God, thank you for the space in this venue that we get to come together and worship you as a people that have been united to you and united to one another. I pray that as we examine this text, that you would even begin to start drawing out idols in our lives that we have given ourselves over to, God, that you would free us and release us from those and draw us into deeper and deeper relationship with you. I pray that your people would be edified today, and if there's anything I prepared that is not of you, I just pray that you would remove it from my mind and that your word and your truth would be held up and glorified. We love you, God. And pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So starting in verse 14, anybody who's uh, spent more than a minute in Christianity, especially in Acts 29 church, or has had any kind of training in hermeneutics, know that 
When you see the word therefore, you have to ask, what is it? Therefore, yes, everybody knows. So there's context here. Paul had been saying something before we jump into this verse. It's not suspended in midair. But prior to, he's giving warnings to the church in Corinth, telling them to, to not indulge in sexual immorality, stay away from evil, and to not be idolaters and things like this that Rick had discussed last week. And given that context, Paul says, because of these things, therefore, my beloved, to those I love, to everyone listening whom I have a deep and abiding affection for, if there's one thing that's clear from reading 1 Corinthians is that Paul loved the Corinthians. We see this in chapter 1 where he takes an entire section just thanking God for them. One of the things I do every single night when I put my kids to bed is I pray for each one of them individually. And if you were there, one of the things you would hear almost every single time is I, I thank God for every one of them individually. I'll say thank you, God, for Titus. Thank you for Miles. Thank you for Eva. Thank you for Valkyrie. Because I love them. Thank you for bringing them into my lives and allowing me to be a part of theirs. I thank God for my wife uh, and that we've been together for 13 years and he's managed to keep us and sustain us. And, and just thank you for that relationship. I thank him for Gospel Community Church and the community we have here and the brothers and sisters I have that have encouraged me and corrected me at times and walked alongside me because, because I love them. My life would be missing if any of these people, my family and my church family, were gone. And it's the same for Paul in chapter 1 as he thanks God for the Corinthians. In chapters 1 through 3, we see him try to bring the church into unity. If you know anything about the first century church is that they were under an intense amount of persecution. And so Paul, attempting to help keep them in the Lord, gives them counsel and wisdom, bringing them together because he loves them and wants to see them united in Christ. In chapter 4, he talks about serving and being of service to the church, laying down his life for the church. I, I've often said to Nicole and even uh, some other people I know, have, we've talked about this, that if I was going to look for a man that was going to marry either one of my daughters, I would look for a man that's serving the church. It would be a good indicator as, as to how he would love my daughter. Are they serving? Are they laying down their lives for the bride of Christ so they love the same things that God loves? And Paul says that it's, it's his desire in chapter 4 to do that, and it's a call to all leaders to do the same. In 5 through 8, we find him giving counsel and wisdom and instruction, which truth is often a very powerful means through love. Look at the love of a father and a mother who instruct their child over the course of their lives in their home and then moving forward from, the, from there. And in chapter 9, as we just came out of, we saw that Paul was willing to lay down his rights for his people. Everything that was owed to him, all the freedom he had in Christ, he would give it all up for the sake of his brethren, for those that he loved. So if there's one thing that's clear from the book of Corinthians is that Paul loves the church. Why is he giving them such stern rebukes and such cutting correction and many warnings? It's because he loves them. And this is a call and an admonition to every single one of us, but especially those in leadership, that we would love. Yes, we instruct and at times correct, but as we move through the following chapters, as we're going into chapter 13 and 14 and 15, we see that if we're absent love, then we're useless, a hindrance to the gospel even. Regardless of how eloquent our speech is or how profound what we say is, but we're actually devoid of the gospel ourselves. And this is the case because we model our ministry after Jesus. 
who, by the way, said some hard things. If you go back and look at John 6.60, even his disciples come to him and says, who can receive this? This is difficult. But why did he set aside his crown? Why did he enter into humanity? Why was he obedient to the law of God in life and suffering far more than any other in death? It's because of us. For those of us in Christ, he had a people whom he loved before the foundations of the world with a never-stopping, never-giving-up, unbreaking, always-and-forever love, as my favorite children's Bible says. If you haven't grabbed the, the Jesus Storybook Bible, I highly suggest it. But it's true and a great explanation of God's love. So Paul gave these warnings in chapter 10. Don't desire evil, don't be idolaters, and don't indulge in sexual immorality. And then in verse 14, he says, Therefore, my beloved, I've given these words to the people I love deeply to flee idolatry. Run from it. Escape with your life. Idolatry simply, Rick kind of defined it last week in his sermon, it's the act of taking anything, anything at all, other than God, and putting it in his rightful place. Psalm 103.19 says, The Lord has established his thrones in the heaven, and his kingdom rules over all. When your heart has so moved your thoughts, your words, and your actions to try and remove the Lord of glory from his holy throne and replace him with something of his own creation, mind you, it is not only foolishness, but high treason against the king the king of all that ever was or ever will be. You have offended an eternal sovereign of the universe and worthy and deserving of eternal punishment. An unpopular truth, of course, but in reality, no less than what any of us would do to ourselves given the chance. What do I mean by this? Simply put, Given the opportunity, we would allow our idols to lead us into absolute destruction. It's interesting, people who are uncomfortable with hell, even people who are uncomfortable with hell, we're probably all uncomfortable with it, um, but even unbelievers who are uncomfortable with the idea are okay with placing someone like Hitler or Jeffrey Dahmer inside of it. And we like to compare ourselves to men like these and think that we'd be good enough to escape the wrath of God's judgment. But the truth is, we... We refuse to consider how evil we truly are. And if we're honest with how we've broken God's law, it should be clear enough. But our condition is far worse than what we're willing to realize. The Bible teaches that God actually holds people back. He restrains evil within the hearts of men and women. We see this in 2 Thessalonians 2.7. And we even see a very powerful example of this in Genesis 37 with Joseph's brothers. We see... They wanted to murder him. They wanted to kill their brother. It was in their hearts. But God actually used Reuben and their own greed to save Joseph's life. He actually restrained the evil in their brother so that, so that Joseph did not die, so that he wasn't murdered. This is why Jesus says that when you lust after a woman in your heart, you've committed adultery already, and that when you hate your brother, you've already committed murder. Were God only to take his foot off the brakes for a second, we would go flying off the cliff at 110 miles an hour, killing anyone in our path. When you think of the, some of the most wicked and vile thoughts you've had, it's an amazing opportunity to thank God that you haven't carried those things out to their completion. Whether for the sake of self-preservation or genuine conviction from the Holy Spirit, 
we should thank God that he has not allowed us to be fully enthralled by our idols and captured by them. Not only do we stand condemned before God because of them, but we would allow ourselves to be destroyed by them. We pray that the Lord's will be done. In the Lord's prayer, we say, your will be done. But the truth is, the most terrifying thing that God could ever say to any one of us is your will be done. The most terrifying thing God could say to any of us is your will be done. You love your sins and your idols? Here, have them. This is true from Romans 1. We see that God often judges people by handing them over to their sins. I don't know if anybody's ever seen, um, just by show of hands, who's ever seen The Hobbit, The Lord of the Rings, the movie that came out the last 10 years? Okay, not, that's good. I was worried it'd be a lot less than that, honestly. <laughs> it, it, if you haven't seen them, I think it's an amazing movie. All, all six of them, they're family-friendly. Um, and some very powerful redemptive themes and incredible parallels, especially with our relationship to our sins and our idols. In the second movie that came out in the last two, uh, last decade, The Hobbit, The Desolation of Smaug, the, the whole series is this quest that Thorin Oakenshield, the would-be dwarf king, gets a company and they go to the mountain. The whole quest is just to get this stone that would demonstrate his right to rule as king. He had a deep desire to get this stone. They went through many troubles to get it, and he hires a burglar to get it for him, Bilbo. And if you remember the scene with the dragon, and if not, I'll paint the picture for you, he's dialoguing back and forth with this dragon, trying to escape with the stone for his friend Thorin, who wants it desperately. And at one point, he comes very close to the Arkenstone. It's on the ground, no more than a couple feet away from him. And he's face to face with the dragon, and you see Bilbo's eyes look down at the stone for just a second. He glances at it thinking to himself, how am I going to get out of here and bring this stone back to my friend and escape with my life? And the dragon sees this and picks up on it. And it's very interesting what the dragon says, because the dragon hates Thorin. He wants to see him dead, eat him, burn him, kill him any way he can. He sees that Bilbo wants to take the Arkenstone to him, and he says this. In his deep dragon voice, I am almost tempted to let you take it if only to see Oakenshield suffer. Watch it destroy him. Watch it corrupt his heart and drive him mad. If you ever watch the movies and continue, it's interesting. I, I, go home and watch it and see how Thorne's, Thorne develops throughout the rest of the book and how his, his heart and mind do become corrupt. You see, the dragon hated him, wanted him dead. And one of the means he saw that that could be accomplished was to give him the very thing that he desired. The stone wasn't evil. It was, just a, it was just a regular jewel. It was pretty. But it was Thorin Oakenshield's desire for it that would ultimately destroy him and be his downfall. This, this, make, this doesn't come as a shock to someone like me who didn't grow up in the church, but from maybe more of a fundamental background, it, it, it is interesting. Something like your sex drive is actually not evil in and of itself. It's a gift from God, meant to glorify him in the covenant of marriage. But our twisted desires to see something like this fulfilled in ungodly ways is evil, and unchecked, it would lead to our destruction. Just like the dragon in the movie, Satan wants nothing more than for you to have your way and to see your desires fulfilled in the worst ways imaginable. He wants you to be consumed by the fire of your own passions and doesn't want you to 
to reflect any of God's characteristics, his love, his sacrifice, his wisdom, and his control. And this is exactly why Paul is telling us, run from these things. Run from these idols. They will consume you. Paul lays out this argument in verse 15. He says, that essentially, I'm not speaking to stupid people. I know the Corinthians are very intelligent. I've been amongst them, and I see the kind of things they're concerned about. He says, I speak as to a sensible people, and even now as I speak to you, and having been involved in GCC and having the great opportunity to have spoken with many of you and, and even sat down and had conversations in, a, in our gospel community group, I, I have yet to meet a unsensible person at Gospel Community Church, a college town, many of us college graduates, many of us uh, in the trades, which if you've seen me try to put something together from Ikea, it's, it's obvious it takes an intelligent person to work in the trades. And so there are intelligent people here. But the thing is, we are willing to play stupid to see our desires fulfilled. Our idolatry will lead us to do some very embarrassing and stupid things that we would be ashamed of if they were put up on a camera or, or a TV for everyone to see. We would turn the darkest red. Consider what Paul's saying in this chapter. Consider what Rick and I have said. Does your sin lead to life? Do your idols give life or do they seek to take it away from you and see all those you love destroyed? And some people have heard me say this before, and I, I want to give a caution and say that I'm not happy about this. I'm not happy about what I'm about to tell you. But the truth is that a, a worldview, a way of seeing the world that is devoid of God, ultimately leads to death, and we see this in the culture around us in so many ways. Whether unbelievers are killing their children or advocating for assisted suicide, engaging in uncopious amounts of uh, uh, unsolicited sex, we understand that this is obviously dangerous. Even if you do live past some of the scars from that thing, it can destroy your life. And there's many things. There are people in the secular society even arguing that a great many of us need to die in order to save the planet. Somewhere around 90%, according to University of Texas ecologist Eric Bianca. A sad thing to see. You see, God is life. He, he, there was, I've said this before. There's never a moment in all of existence where in which God did not exist. And his laws are a reflection of that life and the life that he wants us to have. But this is exactly what's to be expected when we abandon him and his truth. We have nothing but death to look forward to in this life and the next when we abandon him. But he has provided a means of escaping this. As you move on to verses 16 and 17, if you look down, he talks about the participation we have with Christ through the blood and the bread. We're about to take communion soon. Uh, we'll be taking it. And this is a fitting reminder that the Apostle Paul gives us is exactly why we take communion and why it's called communion, to commune with God. We are re remembering and recognizing our participation with Jesus Christ as we take the cup and we take the bread. You see, Jesus did everything, everything that a man or woman would have to to stand before God fully justified, to be declared holy and righteous, to have done everything that the law required. He was the only man to have ever have lived a life worthy of receiving eternal reward. He was born without sin and continued in his righteousness even in his death, which was completely undeserved and cruel beyond all belief. I've been in the military for 13 years and had to do some interesting training before I went to Afghanistan and even saw some terrible things while there. And I have to say, when I reflect upon the cross and I've heard 
of some of the means of torture and what exactly the crucifixion meant, I don't think I could stomach it. Some of the tools designed to rip and tear out flesh, bruise and break bones, and the disgustingness of the cross, and that torture is a terrible reflection of our sin. His body was crushed for that, for our sins, and his blood spilled out to make us clean. And now, through our faith and, gra and the grace of God, we are now participants with Jesus, the triumphant Messiah of whom the scriptures prophesied would come. His victory over sin and death has become ours. He gave it all so that we would have it all. Our idols can't add anything onto our freedom. The only thing that they can do is take it away from us. They will torture and darken your mind until all hope of glory is gone. And the worst part is we're often the ones inviting them in. We lie to ourselves and hope that we're good enough to get into heaven or that God won't care that we've dethroned him of his throne and put our own desires in his place or that we can somehow bring our idols into the kingdom of God with us. But Paul soberly reminds us that we can't be participants of Christ and that of demons. We can't share in both at the same. Paul again communicates another unpopular truth in verse 22. He says, shall we provoke the Lord to jealousy? The fact that God is a jealous God, but not, of course, in the way that any of us are. It is incredibly different. God is jealous for his own glory, and rightfully so. It would be an evil act or a lie to say that there's anything else in creation that is worthy of being exalted to the place of the Most High. The very first commandment he gives us is, You shall love the Lord your God, or, and you, you shall have no other gods before me. This is the very first command that he gives us. And the truth is, this is exactly what pl takes place when we break any other command. We're placing something other than God in his place when we do that. And to those of us who have done this thing, which would be all of us, Paul asks this question at the end of verse 22, and we'll close with this. He says, are you stronger than God? An obvious rhetorical question. Are you stronger than God? Will you deliver yourself from your own idols? Will you conquer death on your own? Psalm 3, it says that salvation belongs to the Lord. Jesus says in four, uh, John 14, 6, that I am the way, the truth, and the life, and that no one comes to the Father through me. It is Jesus that has overcome sin and death on the cross. God has become our strength and our salvation. And even in the Christian life, I would admonish us not to be so foolish so as to try to, to put our own sin to death in our life and topple our own idols and our own strength, but to rely on Christ, to look to his strength, and especially not to be so foolish as to think we will obtain salvation in our own strength, but fully trust in God. Instead, let us sing loudly as the people of Israel did in the song of Moses when they escaped in the Exodus. The Lord is my strength and my song, and he has become my salvation. This is my God, and I will praise him, my Father's God, and I will exalt him. Let us go and not look in our own strength to topple our idols. Don't look to ourselves to bring us into freedom, but look to what Christ has done on the cross, purchasing our freedom for us, placing our faith in him every day. This is why we come every Sunday reminded of the gospel that we can't do this in our own strength. 
that we need the salvation that Jesus has given us and follow the warnings of Paul's to run from those things that would see us brought back under slavery and captivity and remember the freedom that Christ has given us. Amen? Let's pray. God, I pray that you would help us all, especially in a time where we've been so isolated, where we have probably often looked to other things for our hope, God. I pray that you would help give us a clear mind that we wouldn't constantly run to all these things that we think will give us pleasure and satisfaction and peace and freedom, but that you would remind us that you are the, the one who ultimately gives us these things, that we find our ultimate satisfaction in you, our joy in you, that we find life in you, that there's nothing but death to be found in chasing down some of these idols. Thank you for delivering us from them, God. I pray we fall, we, I pray that we not fall back under their yoke, which was terribly burdensome. Thank you for the freedom you've given us, God. And to your name alone we pray, amen.